Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the beauty of this world to enjoy. And we pray that you would help us to enjoy it, to see it in the busyness of life and in all the distractions that come our way, to, to see it and, and to enjoy uh, what you have given us and to give you thanks. We pray at the same time that uh, we would see beyond it to you, the giver of all, the giver of all things. And that we would give you praise. And that we would cling not to the gifts that you have given us, but to you, the giver. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would, um, you would in this moment even, um, realign our affections. And, and make our values and our priorities the same as yours. But we admit that, that they are not. And we pray that your spirit would make us cling to Jesus in this beautiful and yet broken world. We pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's so much easier to preach to you all. You don't tell me about your polar bear. Um, we're continuing our series through the book of James this morning. And although we're only 12 verses into what's a much longer letter, it's, it's already apparent that James is concerned with the preservation of faith in the midst of trials and temptations that arise. Faith is essential for anyone who would call themselves a Christian. The Apostle Paul writing in, in Ephesians 2 teaches that faith is, is instrumental in our salvation. It's one of the key ingredients that must be present. There he says, we're saved by grace through faith, which is itself a gift of God. Faith being a, a gift from God is no cause for boasting, but faith is our response to the gospel that locates us in Christ and in the story of redemption. And perseverance in faith, we learned from James last week, is, is necessary for the expectation that God would even answer a person's prayers, even if, even if those prayers are asking for a good thing like wisdom. A request without faith and faithfulness is false. You should expect nothing in return, James says. The preservation and perseverance of faith ranks as James's highest concern and priority in this letter. And there are many things in life that threaten faith and thus threaten your, the soul and the health of the church. But James is wanting us to, wanting to show us how the gospel can help us endure these things and survive with our faith still in Christ. This morning, James introduces the trials of wealth in verses 9 through 12. And I recognize that most translations, including the ones in our, uh, the one in our, our pews, put, put a break between verses 11 and 12. But several significant scholars of late have been questioning this division. Verse 12 can just as easily belong to verses 9 through 11 as it does to verses 13 through 16. And in reality, it probably serves as this pivot point between the two sections. And for our purposes this morning, we are including it with verses 9 through 11. And it's also important to remind you here that the word translated as temptation in verse 12 is the same exact word that is translated as trial in verse 2. There are not two Greek words for these different concepts as there is in English. And so context must be the deciding factor. 
In some ways, this is a, a narrow distinction because the, the line between external trials and internal temptations can sometimes be hard to locate when the external trials are the occasion for internal temptations. All trials create the condition for temptation, but temptation does not always result from every trial. To quote, the Martin, to quote Martin Luther, we can't keep the birds from flying over our heads, but we can keep them from making a nest in our hair. So if we include verse 12 with verses 9 through 11, and keep in mind that the word for trial and temptation is the same in the Greek, then, then altogether the text reads in this way. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low. Because the rich will disappear like a flower of the field, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the field. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. It's the same way with the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they'll wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures trials. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. All right, with the inclusion of verse 12, it becomes, it becomes apparent that James is, is talking here about the trials of wealth. On the one hand, an abundance of wealth and its attendant benefits is actually a threat to faith and not a sign of it. It's the occasion for great temptation. And with this assumption, James is proving that he is solidly in line with the teachings of Jesus. Right? In, in Matthew 19, at the end of a conversation with a wealthy young man, Jesus tells this man, if you wish to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But the story goes that when the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. His wealth was a hurdle along the path to perfection, a hurdle he must clear by ridding himself of the possessions that had a stronghold on his heart and demanded his devotion. And after the rich young man had left, Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it'll be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, well, then who can be saved? It was the disciples' assumption that wealth was a sign of God's favor. And yet, Jesus' view of wealth in this story is the complete opposite. It was a trial, a danger to the soul of this rich young man. But why it's a danger, Jesus does not say explicitly in this parable. For the answer to the why question, we must turn to another of Jesus' parables. In Luke 12, Jesus tells the story of another rich man. The story goes like this, the land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do? I have no place to store my crops. And he said, ah, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Here in this parable, we begin to learn why wealth is a trial to the soul of the believer. It's because the accumulation of wealth provides this false sense of security and peace. This rich landowner having amassed great wealth, even tearing down smaller barns in order to build bigger ones to hold his increasing possessions, throws up the feet of his heart. 
tells his soul to be at peace. Nothing remains for him in this life but to eat, drink, and be merry. His world exists only to serve him. He has become, in a sense, one of the gods. But if he is a god, he's also a slave. For he's beholden to the preservation of this status he now enjoys. His peace is a, a tenuous one that must be aggressively defended. And so in the end, this man becomes more concerned with nourishing his own comfort, feathering his own nest, than he is concerned with the welfare of the world around him, with the well-being of the people he employs, or with the process of sanctification that requires suffering to accomplish its purposes. In short, this man does not share the values of God, and, and the folly of his behavior is made evident in the reminder that this house of cards he's precariously constructed can fall in a single night. A heart attack, a stroke, can take it all away. And what will be left of the man who dressed himself in such fine linen once he stripped naked? Outside he looked fine, but inside his soul had atrophy due to a lack of attention and engagement. Returning to James, we hear James offering this same exact warning to people with great wealth. He reminds us that this life, with all its possessions and comforts, is like a flower of the field which is here today, but gone tomorrow. What will remain, though, is the soul. You cannot take with you the wealth you worked so hard to acquire in this world, but these things often distract from the soul work that every Christian must sincerely engage in so that when Jesus returns, they may be found ready for him. The question from Jesus in Mark 8 can be heard echoing throughout this passage. What will it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? The answer is obvious. There's no profit, no enduring profit at least. Wealth, therefore, is a, a trial for the soul, a trial that James is concerned about for these believers that he's writing to. And it turns out that Notorious B.I.G. was right. More money, more problems. But the opposite is also true. No money, more problems, right? Wealth is a, a trial for the soul, whether you have it or not. In verse 9, James addresses the lowly believer. And he instructs her to boast in being raised up. Now, why he says this and the prescriptions he offers to both the lowly and the wealthy will explain next. But what James is acknowledging is that the lowly believer is often discouraged by or disillusioned with the Christian life when their experience in this world is a struggle. It is so painful. By lowly, James is not just meaning poor as in contrast with the wealthy. No, as, as wealth brings with it power and respect and comfort, so poverty brings with it vulnerability and contempt, anxiety and grief. These people are lowly in much more than just the balances of their bank accounts. They're lowly in spirit, lowly in the essentials of life, lowly in love. And James recognizes that the experience of lowliness is a test for the soul. From the position of lowliness, it's easy to make wealth and not godliness, the goal of life. It's easy to envy those who possess many things, those people for whom life is easy. It's easy to become bitter, which is poison to the soul. Wealth, despite having none, easily becomes an idol in the heart of the lowly. And you don't have to be all that lowly for it to become an idol. Therefore, James is, is warning both the lowly and the wealthy about the trials of wealth. And he's offering the gospel 
as security against the temptations that might arise on account of this trial. He tells the lowly believer to boast about being raised up and the wealthy person to boast about being brought low. No matter what you're experiencing, the gospel offers the antidote necessary to balance you out, to keep you in Christ, to cultivate a unity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? James is advocating for, for the end of time, according to the Christian story, to bleed into the present in this instance and affect the way Christians think about themselves now and relate to each other now. Right? It's a firmly entrenched understanding repeated throughout all of scripture that at the end of time, God will raise up the lowly. The sorrowful will be comforted. The empty will be made full. The lonely will be embraced. The poor will be crowned with glory. Those who have suffered injustice will experience and taste justice. This is the expectation Hannah gave voice to in her song which was read for you as our Old Testament passage this morning. And this is admittedly in this world far off. It feels distant and remote. The present circumstances of life threaten this vision of justice. But James is saying that the lowly believer should remind herself every day of what she will be, even though that's not what she experiences now. It's the very thing that Abilene Clack was doing for Mae Mobley in the movie, The Help. Right? It was a book first, but take Jake Stratman's advice and watch the movie instead. In The Help, Abilene Clack was the nanny for a little girl named Mae Mobley. And Mae's world was this hostile and, and hateful one. Mae was certainly the recipient of much of this hatred, but Abilene Clack being a Black nanny in a white household in the early 60s received the greatest cruelties. Abilene Clack loved Mae Mobley, though, and she was determined that Mae would not end up like her miserable mother. So every day, Abilene would get down to little Mae's level or scoop her up into her lap, take her by the hand, look straight in her eyes, and she would tell Mae, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. You is kind, you is smart, you is important. And this was a contradiction of everything that May was experiencing in life. But Abilene knew that if May could cling to these words about herself and allow them to inform her identity, then she would survive the world in which she was being raised and turn out to be a decent human being. And this is exactly what James is doing with the lowly believer. He's getting down to their level, taking them by the hand, looking them in the face and saying, Jesus loves you. He considers you more valuable than life itself. And he's given you riches in himself that make the purest gold in this world dull and worthless. And if you can endure the trial of wealth in this world, then look at what he'll give you. He will crown you with glory. This is what James says in verse 12. He will celebrate you, rejoice over you. You'll be glorious. James is offering a competing vision of life for the lowly believer. And he's telling them to live in his vision rather than what the world tells them. You is kind, you is smart, 
He was important, right? And he does the same thing to the wealthy person. Rather than climb up to their heights, he makes them bound down to him and he grabs them by the shoulders and he looks straight in their eyes and he says, remember, God doesn't care one lick about how much money you have or what kind of car you drive or what house you occupy. None of these things affect his evaluation of you. Pointing to the rich person's chest, he says, it's what's in here. It's what's in here that God weighs. All the rest of it can be gone in a second. And so he loves you despite all of this. So James actually says that the wealthy believer must boast in this stripping away that will happen. They must look around at everything they possess and daily remind themselves that it can be gone in a moment. And through this reminder, turn their attention to the caring for their souls and for their fellow brother and sister who is lowly. It isn't that the lowly won't be judged for their mistakes or that the wealthy won't also be celebrated. But given their conditions in this world, those aspects of the gospel are not what they need to focus on in in order to endure the trial of wealth. They possess the same faith, and yet their faith offers them different narratives that will preserve and protect their faith in Christ. And really, this logic can be applied to any situation, not just the trials of wealth. James could just as easily have told the person who lacks self-esteem to look at how important they are in Christ's eyes, while at the same time telling the person brimming with confidence not to think of themselves more highly than they ought, for it's by grace alone that Jesus takes any notice of you. No matter what you are experiencing, the gospel offers the antidote necessary to balance you out, to keep you in Christ, to cultivate a unity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. And James chose to talk about the trial of wealth because money was dividing the Christians to whom he was writing. He'll get into this more in chapter 2. But if the lowly and the wealthy live in the narratives of the gospel that serve as an antidote to their earthly position, then there is no basis for prejudice on, or priority based on wealth in the church. We are all poor, the gospel tells us. And Christ has made us rich because Christ was rich and for us, he became poor. He left the abundance of living in the father's presence because he didn't focus on his wealth. Philippians 2 says he he didn't consider it something to, to, to cling to, to hold on to. He knew the trial of wealth and yet he overcame it in the incarnation. He gave it all up in order to become lowly. And a lowly life he lived. He knew the temptation that comes with being poor and insignificant in the world's eyes. But he endured that side of the trial of wealth by living in the Father's promise to raise him up, even as he submitted himself to going lower still, to the cross and to the grave. And he demonstrated in his resurrection that those who humble themselves, as well as those who have been humbled by the world, will be raised up in him when they cling to him in faith. The believer, whether lowly or wealthy, who joyfully receives the gospel as an antidote to their lives in this world, will in the end be raised up. They will be crowned with glory as a victor, as one who endured the trials of life, and in the end persevered in faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Amen.